What's amazing is as soon as you put the weapons down, it's incredible what happens with other people. People get to admit things. And the problem is with humans is you don't feel safe until someone's done it first. And we have to do that to practice that. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you're here from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own before it happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. So I'm super excited about my guest today. This is somewhat of a British invasion. First, we had the Beatles, then we had 80s New Wave, and now the two lads. A couple of young expat British artists in LA named Daniel Sharman and Leggy Langdon. Daniel is an actor, Leggy is a musician, and they met in quite unusual circumstances, but we'll get to that in a bit. Together, they're the hosts of a wildly successful new podcast called Two Lads, and we have the behind the scenes story. Now, if you're not familiar with the show, which is currently in its first season, Two Lads is really about how men deal with subjects that have traditionally been difficult for them to talk about. Things like love, emotion, conflict, and shame. Daniel and Leggy bring a sense of raw vulnerability to these topics and more as they take us on their journey towards emotional growth and spiritual wellness. I couldn't wait to have Daniel and Leggy on my show, and I was thrilled that they were just as open, honest, and fearless with me as they are on their own podcast. If you've listened to Before It Happened, you know I like talking with innovators, revolutionary thinkers who are changing the game in their respective fields. The two lads are no different in that regard. They're giving men a whole new way of looking at and dealing with their own emotions and mental well-being. And well, it's helpful for us women too. Before I get into what Daniel and Leggy are doing on their show, I should first let you get to know them as individuals. Daniel was born and raised in East London. He was passionate about football or soccer, as we say, but when he was still very young, he was bitten by the acting bug. Acting started actually, weirdly, at my public school where somebody came to my school and they said, right, I want all the lads who can be here for the summer. I want you all against the wall. And we were all playing football and and I was like, oh, I'll do that. And then they generally filtered about 50 or so kids. And they said, we want you to audition for the Royal Shakespeare Company to be in this play. And I just thought it sounded like a great idea to bunk off school and generally piss about. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And um, they asking you to do that for in a football lineup. 
Well, they just needed they needed boys. Oh, okay. So they ended they up boys. They need boys. So they were like, right, we'll go up to this school. And I, I ended up auditioning. I went through a few rounds and I got this part in the Royal Shakespeare Company and ended up kind of, it was at the Barbican at the time, which is also in East London and, and got to basically be in dress up and do the whole thing at about nine years old. So it was kind of the introduction to it was like pure chance, really. Someone just came to my school. That's amazing. And were anybody in your family actors or? No, no. My mum's a doctor and a and an artist. Then my dad was in like local politics. And so they were a bit shocked, really. I think they still are, to be honest. <laughs> and siblings? Yeah, I had a younger brother. So you're not around anymore. He's not around anymore. <laughs> I have a younger brother, but I have a half brothers and sisters and um, older half sisters. So my dad's been around, Donna, is, is what I would say. We call that philanthropic. Right, exactly. So you're the only thespian. And like, so now you're in this, your preview into acting. How did that go to the next level? Like at what age did you say, oh, I want to do this? I think I basically was asked back by the RSC. And the RSC were doing Henry V at the same time as a play that I was doing. And I was doing Macbeth. And I just fell in love with it. And I went back and then I just learned entire acts of Shakespeare because I just loved it and I fell in love with it and became obsessed by the words and and at that age at 11 I think you just you end up soaking in so much information and I learned the entire first two acts of Macbeth and and then went to a performing art school because one of the teachers said like you've got to keep doing this and so I did and and that's how I I started early really I mean it, it was it was from that I just didn't want to stop and then I decided I'll bugger this I don't want to do this anymore because it was I was a teenager and then I left to go to a boarding school and then within three months of being at a boarding school I got a part that toured around England and that was the beginning of kind of me not really having a choice anymore at that point you know you mentioned Macbeth was there a particular character or play that you just kind of gravitated and said, "Ugh, you know, this is really what's pulling me in? I've always had an obsession with the drama and the kind of the depth of all of Shakespeare's plays, but they, they just, I was obsessed by them. And I saw Mark Rylance a lot at the Globe because he was artistic director at the Globe at the time and saw him do Measure for Measure. I mean, as a kid watching Henry V is... If that's your reference, it's hard to kind of then go home and watch EastEnders. You know, it's it's a difficult thing to get your head around because I just assumed, you know, a bit like growing up in Hackney, I thought this was normal. I thought kids did this. I thought this is what the bar was really high for that kind of work. And and so I, I just became immersed in it and loved it. And I watched probably hundreds and hundreds of performances of of my play or also they they did kind of back to back so they would do a play straight after and I watched that and when you're that age it's a bit like learning a language you just end up learning whole swathes of it and so that was kind of it was hard to go back from that really I was just always a dreamer I think I was always just like in the clouds and long trips to school or boarding school and like and I think I was always kind of more at home with the make-believe than, than the real. And, and so it's been a journey for me to, to kind of come back down to earth and be more normal. It's funny to think about it in such like a past, it feels like a past life kind of feeling, but yeah, it was good. 
And so being away from home, you know, you were a teenager, so you were yeah. like fairly young. I've actually talked to people that have gone to boarding school since they were like five years old. But what was that experience like and not being with your family unit or your parents? Yeah, I, I talk about this a little bit on our podcast because I, I've developed absolutely no human skills, you know, as a grown up. I feel like I'm bereft of the most obvious cooking kind of self-care routines that I just don't have because I was on tour, I, you know, and also my emotions are a bit skewed because I I don't miss people because I'm so used to just getting up and going and leaving. And that obviously has a big effect on my love life, as you can imagine. And I just don't really have a an ability to form attachments in the same way because, you know, they're so intense and yet are so fleeting. At 16, you have to find your own accommodation. So you have to find where you're going to stay if you're in Oxford or, you know, Brighton or wherever you are, you have to find your own accommodation and live there basically, but only at night. And I tell this story, which is that I'm a big sleepwalker and the places that you get digs, they call in England, this is where you stay in someone's house. They offer their house up and they're all these kind of old ladies who are, you know, patrons of the theater and so I used to stay at these like, you know, old ladies houses, but I sleepwalk. And so there's one occasion in which I just walked stark bollock naked into this poor old lady who I'd never met because she'd offered her house up and, and I'd come late after a, a show and just start sleep doing an entire like act of a play naked in front of her, never having met her. And she, I was only there for a night. So you can imagine it wasn't exactly... Uh, I mean, they're exciting, but I have no skills other than, than the ability to just get up and move and go. Let's hope that video is not out there. <laughs> yeah, thank God she, would, she wasn't, uh, <laughs> hadn't got a smartphone at that point, I don't think. So let's get you stateside. So where year did you come to the U.S. and, and what actually brought you here? Um, I came after I graduated from drama school and I came to do a movie in t- 2011. I was only on a 90-day visa, which is what you're allowed to stay for. And I'd really loved, fell in love with the United States. And I'd pretended to be from the United States my whole life. So I I was just desperate to try and live here at some point. And on the 89th day, I got a job on a movie. And and I was going to fly back to London. And that was kind of going to be me going back to London and, and trying to get work there. And on the 89th day, the director called me up and said, you're going to Canada and you're going to go film this movie. It was called Immortals and and you get on a plane tomorrow. So I was a day away from basically not being here full time. So do you go back and forth between LA and, and London now or predominantly here? Yeah, I go back a little bit. All my family are still in London. So I kind of go back and see them, but I haven't been back for a couple of years. So obviously it's been a bit hard during this this time. Leggy had a much different sort of upbringing. He grew up further north in the city of Leeds, the youngest of three brothers by many, many years. He was eight years younger than his middle brother and 12 years younger than the eldest. His older brothers became successful musicians, together founding the band Space Hog, which released a hit album in the mid-1990s. When Leggy was 15 years old, he started traveling to New York City to visit his brothers and quickly began joining in their rock and roll lifestyle. 
So where does the name Leggy come from? My brother kind of named me that, I guess, when I was a little younger. So I'm Leggy, and then we have a middle brother called Stumpy. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, he was called Specky, my other brother, for some reason. But anyway, that was the original lineup. And so my one was the only one that stuck. So everybody calls me Leggy since I was like 21. So I didn't have it when I was a kid, actually. So nobody calls me Christian at all in America. The only person that calls me Christian is my mother. I know what that's like. I'm the youngest of four, but there's 10 years difference each one. So it's going to be a lot. They say that you grow up as an only child, essentially, if that generation gap is there. Mm. So I did kind of grow up like that. I didn't feel like I had a a brother that was in my world, you know, he was always more of a parental figure. But they did kind of lead the way to kind of get out of Leeds. Up until that point, our generations of families had just been in the North. They hadn't gotten out. And so because they were musicians, they ended up in New York and they were already living there. And so that kind of gave me an automatic out from Leeds to the big city, so to speak, but it wasn't London. I kind of bypassed London and went straight to New York. And what about your parents? What was your homestead like? What did they do for a living? My mom was a secretary for a long time, and then she actually kind of graduated into becoming a headhunter for, she would like get fine CEOs for corporations, stuff like that. She, she did that at the end of her career. My dad early on worked on the railway in England as a clerk and then he got into a news agency stuff so he had a, like a bodega essentially that he ran and then from that he kind of went into distribution of various things back in the day pre-internet it was like you got free samples in the mail and stuff like that or like coupon booklets and stuff that's what my dad delivered so you went to Leeds really early. And that was the inspiration from your brother who was a musician or? I went to New York. Yeah. And that's a pretty bold move. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wasn't the pioneer. I was a follower of the older brothers. So they d- definitely paved the way there. And it definitely softened the the landing to arrive in New York. And both your older brothers are already set up, you know, and they were like kind of rock stars at the time. So they were they were living the dream. Oh, that's pretty cool to go live with a brother who's a rock star. So what was your what was your number one inertia? Like, you're going to be a rock star too? You already knew you were going to be in music? Yeah, well, I think because they were doing it, I was looking at that. And again, we didn't have the internet then. It was like we were getting the phone call every other week from them in New York over to Leeds going, oh, we're doing this, we're doing that. And I would fantasize about what they were actually doing because I couldn't see it. I was just like imagining what it was like to be in a band going on tour with like the Red Hot Chili Peppers or whoever they were going on tour with. And so fantasizing about, oh, in the same way that you might have a family baker lineage passed down, I was like, oh, well, they're doing it. So can I. So I very early on, I was like, I'm going to do that too without even thinking about it. So was your brother your legal guardian, so to speak? Not my legal guardian, but they were both definitely idols of mine. Like I looked up to them and wanted to follow in their footsteps. After years of having varying degrees of professional success, Daniel and Leggy eventually found themselves in Los Angeles. A couple of British expats struggling to juggle their artistic careers and personal lives. They had both already begun their spiritual quest, and both were recovering addicts. 
it was only a matter of time before they'd meet. How did the two of you meet? What was that setting? We met on drugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we, we were doing plant medicine ceremonies and I was involved in the community of that. And our dear friend who runs this particular group had told me about Daniel. And so I'd heard about him coming into the community, but we'd never met. And I just knew that his last name is Shaman because they, they all used to say Shaman. And I kept getting confused, being like, are you talking about the Shaman of this ceremony or who's Shaman? You know, because like, it's basically the same. Same thing. Same thing. And then we met here, right? Yeah, we met here. Yeah. So we had a journey here. And then he, you showed up with his partner at the time. And we had this, we did a ceremony. And that's when we first met. But it, it took a minute for us to start to kind of get closer. And it, it wasn't really until we both were going through like really intense breakups at basically the same time, or like staggered like a month apart or something, right? Yeah. He actually just showed up at my doorstep and was like, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. I heard you're fucked too. Do you want to talk? <laughs> <laughs> so we just sat in, in the back room, had a cup of tea and started to kind of talk. I'd also similarly heard a lot about Leggy, but I'd kind of come from men's team stuff, which had felt very kind of like rigid. and But also there's a little bit of a kind of initiation with that. So I'd heard about Leggy and, and he was also in a relationship that was a bit volatile. And we both, my first impression was, God, this he looks really sad in this relationship and very restrained and we did a, a journey and and you know plant medicine is a great way of kind of releasing a lot of your own insecurities or your own fears i think there's a great degree of conflict that can happen in that but his partner walked out halfway through and i remember thinking oh shit that looks really savage. And, but thinking, I knew that there was something that we deeply bonded over, but I really don't know why. I, when Leggy says I turned up at his door, I really did just turn up at his door. I, I'd broken up with my partner and I was really, I was coming off the tail end of a lot of addiction. And Leggy had, had shared a little bit about his story with, with addiction. And I just kind of turned up and I didn't, I don't really know why really. I mean, I'm, that's not like me to do that, but I just turned up and we ended up chatting and then we ended up kind of bonding in a way that felt like, oh, somebody's finally speaking my emotional language and that felt really good. And then I'd flew to London a week later to go and film something for almost a year, but we just sat on the phone chatting about withdrawal and the pain of of what it's like to come away from a codependent relationship what it's like to come away from addiction you know and and we ended up having these really kind of profound and beautiful chats so it was something that developed over time and i watched his process and i think he got to witness mine and that that obviously led to us just kind of seeing how important it is to share that and to to watch someone through that and then when you went back, that's when COVID started. Yeah, I I came back. We started a men's team because I, I wanted to start the process of what I we had 
learn in, in our conversations and get into these kind of chats, especially with men. We started a men's team and then three months later, the world went into lockdown. So we thought that might be the end of the men's team, but it was actually the beginning in a lot of ways. And and then we kind of were like, let's put some of this on out to the world and give some people the same tools that we have. And like, what was your first impression of Daniel? I was in love immediately, actually. <laughs> My ex-girlfriend thought I was in love with him. <laughs> I saw a lot of myself in him in a kind of younger brother sense. And I didn't have a lot of like male friends at the time. I was kind of swimming in a pool of estrogen and just basically in a bubble with my the girlfriend at the time and just kind of I, I didn't really have any reference point other than what I was kind of getting told through that relationship, which was really toxic. So, you know, in being English and but but not just it's not about being English, it's about living out here, but coming from where we come from. And and even though we're kind of from different areas and all that, there was a lot of familiarity to him. And I just recently discovered that he's a Taurus, which is the same as my two brothers. So I've got this really weird dynamic with him because he's, he's like a younger brother on some level, but he triggers me like my older brother. <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. No, I love it. I picked up by that and listening to everything going, oh, you're kind of like the elder statesman brother and kind of under the wings, which is great, right? Because you were always the youngest. Yeah. Well, it's funny because my my eldest brother told me recently, he said, you're the eldest now. And I was like, oh, no, I finally got what I wanted and I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about very specifically, like, because I, I know the whole stiff upper lip and, and you know, kind of British closed versus open. But we're seeing you know, Prince Harry even now talking about mental health and Michael Phelps has been for a while in Carson Daly and others. And men typically don't have that open man cave, right? There's the barbershop in America and other countries. There's, you know, the, the, the sauna or the sweat room in Britain, you have the pubs. So how did you go through the process of deciding we're going to do this in a podcast format or did it start in the men's group and then it went to the podcast format? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're really right. Like Leggy and I really notice in England, the way that men bond and show love is by getting absolutely battered in a pub, watching football and then going, I, I fucking love you, you know, and then they get to say, I forgot about that, you know, like, oh, I was, I was so pissed, you know, like, and actually in the process of watching, I've watched and been a part of setting up men's teams for now for over six years, I've actually seen how much deep need there is for men to be intimate with each other and to show love and to, to have that trust with other men. And, and we, we kind of, through setting up the men's team here in LA and talking I think we were called by lots of people. I mean, lots of people have said to us, like, you you should really try and give these tools to as many people as possible. So we originally started a podcast to just kind of chat about our lives and, and just to try and model what that would look like to show that it's possible to go first and show that it's possible for men to do this. And there is a big swing towards mental health. There's a lot of things around it, but 
it's a hard topic, you know, like sometimes it feels a bit too general to say mental health. It's like what we're working on is intimacy. I think that's our little niche of mental health, which I think is really important. And there are lots of things you can do for your mental health, like exercise and do all these things. And those are all big key components. But for men to have a community and for men to get really deeply intimate, you need safe spaces for that. And we're all about setting those up. And in order to set those up, we have to show what it looks like. And the podcast format kind of works for that. And there are some really hard topics that we talk about, but we feel very safe with each other. And sometimes things get really dicey. And like, you know, the conflict one, we really did have a conflict that was like, it got brutal. And we have to be able to say, share that. And we have to talk about our sex lives and we have to talk about our insecurities because I think, especially for men, they can sense when they're being bullshitted in a really big way. And if they, they just know bravery when they see it. And so in order for us to go first, we have to kind of, we have to keep holding ourselves to that standard. And that was our kind of MO from the beginning. Oh uh, yeah, and to f- just to add on to that, I think that like what you just mentioned about the the pubs in England, and you know, alcohol is a a way to give you it gives permission yeah. to let go of the the walls, the, the, drop the walls that you've built around yourself to protect yourself from being, you know, hurt. And I think that once you give, in this case, a man permission to open, to release, all this emotion comes out. That's why they're all like, "I love you," you know, on the night. Because it's immediate, it's immediate. You get a couple of drinks down a guy and he's put his arm around his mate telling him how much he loves him. The next morning, it's, you know, nothing happened. So what this is, I see, is just a different form, healthier, perhaps, way of giving men permission to be vulnerable. That means, vulnerable means whatever that is. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be squeaky clean. It could be very aggressive. We need space to release primal scream and all that stuff. Like we set up a circle. When Daniel says we set up a safe space, what we mean is it's a safe space to get messy, to get real because we can hold it. The men can hold it for you while you just scream in the loudest you've ever screamed in your life, for example, or something like that. You know, that I think is incredibly important. Yeah, well, nobody wants to go to a cleaned auto mechanic, right? If you walk into an auto mechanic, yeah, yeah. you don't smell grease and it's the oil and <laughs> yeah. dirty parts. Yeah. Like, why would you want to get your car? You know, Neurosurgeons, on the other hand, I like them to be clean when I walk in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you talk about a lot on the show, you know, relationships, sobriety, mental health, personal wellness. And, and I know the emphasis on mental health, but during COVID, 93% of the world was affected by that in some degree. And which obviously, you know, depression and different things. And I've worked with certain neuroscientists that are dedicated and really experienced with psychedelics and medicine treatments and, you know, all that. So I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with that. But how did you, you know, creating the men's group and, and then having that connection? How big are these men's groups? Are there, how many typically are part of them? So they kind of verse that there's hundreds across LA and there are specific men's networks, but usually there's about 10 to 12 men, but they can be anywhere from six to 12 men and, you know, women's circles as well, which are also formed and, and 
but they're required to be held in a certain manner. There's a lot of things. It's not as easy as just meeting up every Wednesday. You know, there are certain things that you have to hold standards around. And, and essentially, it's just giving people a ritual and a communal sense of togetherness that I think we're just losing very quickly. And especially in COVID, I think it's tended to kind of give us more and more of a kind of solo isolationist mentality. And I I think that's going to be to the detriment of humankind. And especially for men who can isolate very easily, this is just so important that we can do it in a healthy way and for people to meet and to have ritual in their life. Do you think that you're leading a, a new movement or a new wave? You know, is is the two lads kind of breaking a social code? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that we are adding to, you know, I listen to a lot of neuroscience. I'm very about how we can feel better in every way, whether that's returning to to our kind of circadian rhythms or whether that's, you know, the science behind what produces dopamine and oh, you know, all of these things. I think some of it's basic and we're losing some of the basic ritual and community. And it's not easy to set that up. And so we're trying to start a movement around here's the tools to be able to set that up in your own city, in your own space. And here's what it looks like. And I can only speak from my personal experience, but it saved my life. It got me out of some pretty horrendous addiction. And it's not new. You know, the 12-step program is is a big community. And this is just saying we're trying to set up something that that has all the benefits of 12-step, but maybe can kind of give people a bit more of a reference without having something specific like alcohol to kind of ground it in. And also, I, th- I think that we are losing a sense of accountability in society as we have social media is just further in as into a space of non-accountability so you're to your words or anything like that you're living in a virtual space and you're just saying whatever you want without any repercussions to what you say in the same way that you might when you're driving in your car and you've got road rage you're yelling at someone like you would never do if you were just walking down the street you know because you're in a car and you're traveling at 70 miles an hour there's no accountability so I know you have a lot of women fan base. I, I've read a lot of Instagram, you know, posts and, and comments and stuff. And I, I think it's really intriguing to me as a woman to listen in and kind of like tune in. But I can relate to both of you. You're so open and you're you're real. You're not acting. It's like literally down your you're unscripted and leggy, you're unplugged, you know, in the music world. So unscripted, unplugged. I mean, how does that feel to have that freedom within this format? Yeah, I mean, it's very exposing for me. I mean, I had always grown up with the idea that you you shut up, especially as an actor, because you should be mysterious to be able to play different roles and do things. And I'm a very private person, actually. I've always been a very private person, but it's not really worked, to be honest, Donna. Like, it's not... I, I always thought of being private was a way to get something, which is to be mysterious, to get work, to get to be something that I'm not, which felt like a really hard thing to get rid of, which is to say, oh shit, there might be something more important than looking mysterious to get more jobs or more money. There might be something more important to leading by example. And that was hard for me. I mean, it's 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 definitely new for me to be honest or to be completely open, even about the shame 
that I have around my own career or my own judgments or my own life. And in some way, I still get this thing of like, is this an ego trip, you know? But as long as I feel like the message, it, because I always admire, have always admired people who are honest and are totally open. People that I've always kind of thought, wow, that's a really impressive, even people like Russell Brand, who I've always thought, well, I admire the honesty by which he goes about things in a way that feels like it's important for people to see. If they're going to have icons, they shouldn't be these mysterious, deified images, because we're not, that denies our humanity. It denies the fact that we all do the same things, that we all have the same shame. And I think I was trying to deny that in order to be more interesting. And actually, I'm not interesting. And that's okay. And so I've got a situation where there are lots of like follow, I have lots of followers who think of, you know, that are plugged into this kind of social media thing of like, oh, this is a celebrity or whatever. And it's like, then you listen to this, hopefully, and you go, oh, right. Yeah, no, I, I have issues that I have to deal with. And and I will say about the women listening to this podcast is it's, these teams are not just about men. We can only speak from men's team stuff because we because I'm in a men's team, but women's circles are are equally as important and they're equally as you know, give all the benefits of being held accountable to something. And one of those is to name the covert mission that you have in life. And my covert mission was, if I was secret enough, then people would think I was cooler than I was. And I'm not actually that cool. And that's my covert mission. So I have to kind of blow that apart. And in order to do that, I have to do this podcast because like no one should be following anybody, you know, the work starts with you and I have to name it in order to be more honest, to be more human. And hopefully other people can do the same. And you, I think there's also this level for I'm curious for both of you is when you're in the entertainment industry and you're surrounded by access to you know, drugs and, and alcohol and any and everything. Right. And sex, drugs and rock and roll and plus whatever. It almost gives you permission, right? Because it's like when you're a creative person, it's like, oh, well, you get permission because you might be more creative. Is that always something that you that I was curious the two of you had to deal with your whole career or a certain chunk of your life? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was encouraged. I mean, I got into the music industry when I was 16 and I remember getting arrested and that was like great. It was like good news. They were like used it as press that we like threw a TV out of a window and like we actually threw a bed out of the window, not a TV. And that was like celebrated. And you're like 16 years old mm. and you're like, oh, yeah, have some more booze, have some more like be the performing monkey, you know, and actually it's all a myth. You can't be operating at the top level if you're hungover or drunk or it's all trauma is what it is. Ultimately, creatives, a lot of the creatives, they've got trauma, it's unconscious, and drugs, alcohol, sex, anything that temporarily removes pain is so lucrative to a creative because they live in the creation of things that you can, you, it's like God creativity for a creative person. It's where they find the purpose and meaning. And yet also, then you have to go and like, 
be a touring artist or it's not the same thing as the dream in the bedroom when you're very innocent of like just the purity of creation. Then all of a sudden you're in the business and you've got an agent and you've got a lawyer and a business manager and you're 16. And all of a sudden you're like trying to find that thing again that you had when you're in your bedroom when you wrote your song. And now you're playing on stage every night and you're operating in this very weird bubble. And it's like, yeah, now I'm going to drink and that feel that pain relief go. I'm like out of unconscious feels good when you're carrying unconscious pain around with you. Yeah, it's kind of partly why people become famous is to numb pain, you know, like they want anybody who subjects themselves to any kind of creative endeavor usually has some degree of pain because there's a proving, there's a desire to prove and you have to go through so many things. I mean, Leggy and I both at early ages were doing things that 16 year olds shouldn't be doing because we had some unconscious trauma or some pain that we were trying to prove to somebody. And then you set them on that kind of course. And then you say, here are some drugs and you go, brilliant. So this is less pain. I get to deal with less pain. This is even better. Yeah, and buffering the reality, right? And I don't think any of us are exempt from feeling pain or having, you know, some form of human disconnection and and I think that's what's happened this last couple of years of you know, people felt isolated or felt disconnected and and reconnecting and looking. I think that's one of the voids that you're created is a, a safe place to listen and to partake and then hopefully take action, right? We have a statement, we go first. What does that actually mean? Well, being vulnerable now, what I call putting the weapons down, the weapons being even if I don't tell you how sad I am or how scared I am, then I unconsciously am trying to pretend to you that I know what I'm doing and you don't. And by going first, it's just by saying, I hope when people listen to the podcast, we go, God, sex is really a crazy thing. You know, we do this, I've done this and this is, and so it feels like people can come into it and go, oh, the weapons are down here. You know, it isn't a political thing or it isn't a looking good thing. It's just like we're putting the weapons down for a moment and saying, oh God, isn't it weird being human? Isn't that a bit hard? And I struggle with this and anything is acceptable in that space. And what's amazing is as soon as you put the weapons down, it's incredible what happens with other people. Suddenly things that come out that people get to admit things. And the problem is with humans is you don't feel safe until someone's done it first. And we have to do that to practice that. So if you go back to your teens, what would your future self have taught? Do you think that you needed to go individually through your life path that you have? Or would you have given yourself some form of advice that might have tempered some of your discovery substance and... Can I swear on this podcast? (laughs) Sure. Mine would have been slow the fuck down and lay off the drugs if you can. I think also find a mentor very quickly, you know, as a a young lad. I wish I'd had a bit more mentorship in my life that was direct. Uh, I didn't get a lot of that from my father you know from just the way it landed but if you don't find a mentor they can find you and that can sometimes not be great so I think it's important to have good teachers and people that you trust that can help you along the way especially when you're a kid 
Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, you know. Like, uh, there's so many things that I could, like you said, I kind of would love to say to myself. I think it's probably the reason why we're doing this is to, in some way, give people the idea that when I was 17, to hear that other people were just as messed up and going through some the same things would have been, was a real relief to me. And so, I think sometimes with this stuff, you can't really fake it sometimes you don't know what why people sing love songs or breakup songs until you actually go through a breakup and you go oh god that is what that was about or you can't tell somebody stop taking pictures of your dog until you get a dog and suddenly you're just like oh god I fucking love this dog so much and some of these experiences are not possible to come to any conclusion until you've really put your hand on the stove so many times that you're like oh right okay this is hard. And I think they, you know, although I would probably want to change that, I I kind of feel that for all all of the, that pain, hopefully there's some good out of this because I don't think I would be doing this. I would probably still be unconscious in some way. I needed pain to get me to the point where I went, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I don't know. Do you think this is your true calling? I mean, you put your, your courage aside. Do you think ultimately this could be the calling that all this stuff has just happened, in, you know, very cathartically. Well, yeah, <laughs> this is your journey now. <laughs> yes, I think it's a calling in terms of, well, first of all, we'll see how this people respond to this, you know. If people really get something out of this, then it's clear that this was needed. And if no one gives a shit and it just kind of falls away, then it falls away. But I can genuinely say that, we're really proud of this and we're really proud of what we're doing. And I think if it offers people the sense of being less lonely and it gives people the tools to set up their own version of being less lonely, then that's a pretty good legacy. You know, I, I, I would be happy with that. Yeah, I agree. I agree for sure. I think it's we're we're just trying to be, you know, as in our truths and lead with love as much as we can and see the value of what we've gone through and just through experience. We're not telling people what to do. We're literally just kind of modeling through our own conversation, like what we've been through. Fucking hell, wasn't that crazy? What do you think? Oh yeah, you know, and, and an open conversation that is ongoing. And that it's ultimately, you know, it's not a definite how-to. It's just, we did it this way. It works for us. And maybe there's something in it for other people. And if that's the case, then that's amazing because that's by osmosis what connection's all about. That was Daniel Sharman and Leggy Langdon, hosts of the Two Lads podcast. Those two guys are making it their mission to give men a space to break away from gender stereotypes and confront their emotions in an open and honest way. Next, they say they want to help men with another kind of space, as in their personal living space. Their next endeavor will involve helping single men focus on making their homes beautiful living spaces. It's another stereotype they're hoping to slay for men. Daniel says it's important to impress upon men that good mental health is important, but sometimes they need to see physical, tangible results to help them on their way. And home is the best place to start. I highly encourage you to check out the Two Lads podcast 
which you can do by subscribing and downloading wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.